Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. And my next guest on West Coast Live, who's written a number of uh, books over the years, including uh, Bringing the Heat, Black Hawk Down, A Story of Modern War, uh, that was made into a film directed by Ridley Scott, Uh, Our Finest Day, D-Day, Finders Keepers, The Story of a Man Who Found a Million Dollars, Road Work Among Tyrants, Heroes, Rogues, and Beasts, Guests of the Ayatollah, The First Battle in America's War with Militant Islam, The Best Game Ever, about a football game between the Giants and the Colts in 1958. He has a new book out about conflict, and it's called Worm, The First Digital World War, and it's about the Conficker computer worm that some of you, how many of you know of the Conficker computer worm? Oh, well, you will be scared by the end of this conversation. And it involves many people, uh, including uh, just down the peninsula and here in San Francisco, who worked on trying to find out what this particular beast was that it's inhabited many people's computers. Please welcome the author, Mark Bowden, to West Coast Live. How do you do? Nice to meet you. There's something about conflict that draws you, I think. Well, I think you're the only one who's ever read all the books I ever wrote, which... I'm not sure I'm the only one that's... uh, I wouldn't put that claim on it at all. (laughs) I I hope you've read them all. I did, yeah. I can't vouch for my children, but I've I've read all of them, yeah. When did you first hear about this worm, this computer worm? Um, On the front page of the Wall Street Journal, uh, January of 2009, there was a story about it, and I read it, and realized I had no idea what they were talking about. Uh, so, and that's a motivator for me. Uh, I mean, I'm, I find that I know very little about what actually happens in the real world. Maybe it's from growing up in the suburbs. Uh, and it's motivated me throughout my life to try to understand what's going on out there. And the phrase worm, did you think that it was some sort of a biological creature? Well, it's, it's, like a bug? It's very apt, actually, and it's what, it, what this kind of um, malware is called. Actually, in discussions with my uh, publisher over the title of the book, he began the conversation by saying, I hate that word worm. The word worm will not be. And then I, like halfway through the conversation, he said, you know what? I actually kind of think we should just call it worm. So there you go. So, all right, so uh, for the, uh, the people who might know the difference in, in malware between uh, uh, a virus, a worm, a, a Trojan horse, uh, a bug, what are we talking about? Well, most kinds of malware, some of the ones you just mentioned, viruses, require you to do something stupid. Uh, you have to open a file from someone who you don't know or an email. A worm doesn't depend on you to do anything. It finds its own way into your computer, basically into the core of your computer, and then hands over control of your computer to someone else. And someone else being, uh, in this case, uh, somebody in a black hat, a bad guy. One of the, one of the uh, issues that you bring up in the, in the course of your book is that when the internet was started, it was started by people who had belief in the goodness of humanity. Oh, without a doubt. And you know, it, it grew out of the whole hippie era. You know, the first, uh, Computers connected by the internet were from Menlo Park to the University of California, San Diego, 1969. It was a different world. And, uh, you know, and, and that philosophy still is very much alive, the idea that this um, global, uh, ungoverned, 
kind of anarchical uh, mess that we call the internet uh, will uh, bring a new age of information and empowerment to individuals, which it definitely has. Um, it's you know made the tyrants of the world tremble. Uh, but there's a downside to it, and that is the very openness of the internet, which was designed with very few uh, security precautions, very few um, uh, steps put in place to protect information. It was really more all about sharing information. Uh, and there, it turns out, are um, people who, very clever people, who take advantage of those uh, freedoms on the internet, and including, up to and including now, nation states and very uh, wealthy organized crime syndicates who basically um, can outrun just about any defense in place. Now, this, uh, this story applies to those who have Microsoft Windows computers. For those of us who have Apple Macs, it's kind of an interesting um, cautionary tale uh, that, yes. that may or may not affect Apple or something one day. But, but one of the things that seemed interesting is because of the widespread base of, of Windows computers in the world, and also people who had illegal copies of the operating system, uh, it made it possible for these operating systems to exist without Microsoft wanting to repair them in some way. Well, it, uh, Microsoft is most frequently targeted by malware because it is the most commonly used operating system in the world. And they're in a, a very, uh, they're in the, uh, captured in a dilemma. And that is that when their engineers discover a vulner vulnerability in their operating system, something that would say allow a worm-like configure to invade, uh, they issue a patch. Uh, it, and they usually issue their patches every Tuesday, the first Tuesday of every month. It's called Patch Tuesday. And uh, they are roundly ignored by many uh, computer users who use Windows operating systems. So, and then in addition to the fact that registered users often fail to diligently download security updates, there are an enormous number, millions of computers around the world that operate uh, pirated Windows systems, or and they're unauthorized, unregistered. So what happens is that when Microsoft announces a patch, uh, the patch itself acts as an advertisement for malware software, malware programmers to attack that particular vulnerability. And in fact, that's exactly what happened here. The patch for Configure, as odd as it may sound, was actually issued months before Configure actually appeared. So as soon as Microsoft issued its security patch, uh, some folks probably in Eastern Europe, in this case, went to work designing an exploit that would take advantage of that vulnerability. You take us down to SRI, where there's a, uh, there are some people there who love uh, taking apart computer worms and viruses to see what makes them work. And they have got a swath of the internet that you describe as kind of this open landscape where they can set up kind of virtual operating systems to be open and vulnerable to whatever is out there in the world. Right, uh, because SRI, uh, which used to be Stanford Research Institute, now it's just an acronym, uh, was one of the founders of the internet. They retain a very large um, corner of the, of the internet, which enables them essentially to play around with what's out there. Uh, Phil Porras, who works down in Menlo Park, has a what's called a honey net. It's actually a, a, a virtual network of computers. These aren't actual machines. They're like uh, uh, programs operating inside a much larger computer system that imitate uh, individual computers. And so he creates what's called a honey net. Are you guys following this so far? <laughs> and the honey net captures any kind of malware that drifts out into the internet. 
fairly rapidly. And so he literally rides herd over all these different strains of malware. He's got a monitor on his desk. Every time a new piece of malware pops into his honey net, he gets a readout on his screen. So over a period of a day, he might get 100 to 200 new strains of malware that pop in. Most of them are instantly recognized by him and by uh, antivirus industry folks. This one, when it appeared in November of 2008, was not recognized by anyone and, and started replicating itself so fast that by the next day, the only malware pouring into his honey net was Conficker. So the, the name of this, of this uh, worm, we can't really describe its origins uh, on the radio here at the moment, but <laughs> it's, it's, it's a word that kind of uh, was, was uh, sort of described how this worm was so diabolically created uh, based on other worms that had been, uh, it, was, it was kind of an example of evolution in the computer world to create something that, like people coming into the Venetian room through the kitchen door, found a way to come into a back door in the computer, some port that was open, and then did various things, including erasing messages that said, go out and check for new antivirus software. Right. Well, I mean, it, it is one of the most cunningly designed pieces of malware that folks like Phil Porras had ever seen. Uh, and yeah, one of the things that it did when it invaded your computer was it disable any uh, um, security updates. So your computer then became vulnerable to anything that came along after it, which meant that whoever was controlling uh, the Conficker botnet could invade your computer pretty much at will. The, the botnet's creator is not terribly interested in your machine. Uh, the idea is to link together a million, in this case, 10 to 12 million individual computers. And when you do that, you create what is essentially a supercomputer. It's distributed computing, and it's used for a lot of bene beneficial things. I mean, this uh, SETI program, which re reads radio signals from space, trying to figure out if there's intelligent life out there. Uh, they distribute tasks to you know hundreds of thousands of individual computers, and they each work on little pieces of that task. That's an example of a beneficial use, but a botnet gives someone uh, who has either um, uh, vandalism or sabotage or criminality on their mind a, a very, very powerful tool. And botnets comes from the phrase robotic or robot network, and it can be, uh, then it sort of sits waiting for instructions from someone. Right, uh, all those infected computers call home once a day. And, uh, and, and home is, in this case, a hidden location on the internet. And the way the creator hid himself on the internet was to have the worm generate randomly 250 domain addresses every day. And so all he had to do was be behind one of those 250 doors. Uh, but anyone trying to prevent the net network, the botnet, from communicating with his controller would have to corral all 250 domains every single day, every day, forever, in, in order to shut it down. So then how did this group of uh, computer detectives uh, try to deal with these, these web domain names? I mean, this was a consortium put to people, of uh, people from Microsoft, from SRI, other computing geniuses. Uh, what was their strategy of trying to figure out where home was? Well, this is the fascinating thing about it. Uh, initially, what they did was dissect the worm uh, removed the algorithm that generated the domain names, and then they could turn it forward. They connected it to their own clock. So they could tell you on any given day in the future what the 250 domains 
would be. And then they went out, actually a fellow named Rick Wesson, who lives right here in the Bay Area, uh, went out with his own credit card and started buying up all those domains in advance in order to prevent the network from con contacting its controller. So you know what they did? They issued a new strain of the worm, which generated 50,000 domains a day, which put a little bit of a strain on poor Rick's credit card. So, so where were places like ICON or these internet uh, administrative agencies or the CIA or the NSA or MI5 or MI6? Where were these people? Not paying attention. Uh, as, as it happens, uh, you know, Conficker posed a threat which really woke up the international community to the potential for these kinds of things. A botnet the size of Conficker's, which is 10 to 12 million computers, is powerful enough literally to shut down the internet itself. And so this became suddenly a uh, national security concern. However, it wasn't immediately recognized as such by anyone other than Phil Porras, Rick Wesson, and the handful of other computer security experts I write about in Worm who recognized how dangerous this thing was. And as I said, I mean, Rick is out there with his own MasterCard trying to save the internet. Uh, eventually, you know, the Obama administration has put, uh, I think, more aggressive uh, uh, steps in place to try to protect the internet, although they're a long way from actually being able to do it. But he cited specifically the Conficker worm as an example of how unprepared we are to uh, protect ourselves. And how savvy somebody is somewhere that would include instructions in the worm that would say, if you come across a computer that has a Ukrainian keyboard, self-destruct yeah. the, the worm, not the keyboard. I mean, there are so many fascinating aspects to this worm. That's one, and that's obviously a clue to the, its creators who are presumed to be Ukrainian. Um, but, I mean, one of the things that really uh, I thought was neat is that uh, the communication between the individual computers and the controller are encrypted. Because if you, could, if you could decrypt those communications, if you could take the place of the controller, you could hijack it and you could just tell them all to shut down or, or to self-destruct. So they encrypted the communications with not just any form of encryption, but literally the highest level of public encryption known to the world, SHA-2. And then, in the next, when the next train came out, they went to SHA-3, which, which SHA is SHA, Secure Hash Algorithm. It's the international standard for public encryption. So when you buy something and exchange private information, it's encrypted in this way. This is the highest known standard, and it has not even been established yet. There's, there's an international competition to create SHA-3. And so what the creators of Configure did was took the proposal drafted by Ron Rivest at MIT, who is sort of the guru of public encryption. They took his proposal and employed it in their malware. So, I mean, it just showed you there are probably, you know, 100 people in the world who are, who are even aware of this international competition for public encryption methods, but uh, the person, the people who wrote Conficker knew. Could this be somebody at some computer center right in Silicon Valley masquerading? <laughs> You know, going through the Ukraine and to Buenos Aires and South Korea and coming back? Who knows, right? Who, who knows? My, my personal theory is Ron Rivest at MIT, uh, because I don't think, I mean, they, not only did they use his proposal, it turned out there was a flaw in his proposal, so he withdrew it and rewrote it, and the next train of Conficker included his improved version. <laughs> so we, we how, how does this do for your sort of feeling of conspiracy theory in the world? 
Well, I, do, I believe uh, that uh, what it demonstrates is the fragility of the internet itself and uh, you know, the ease with which folks with knowledge can use computer networks to make a lot of money. I mean, they used, someone leased a portion of the Configure botnet earlier this year and drained $72 million from American bank accounts. That was just one little piece of the botnet. So it's a very lucrative uh, uh, thing, and it's also the kind of thing that nation states need to get into because any wars in the future will almost certainly involve digital attacks, and a botnet is probably the most powerful uh, tool outside of a computer the size of a room uh, that you could have in that kind of digital warfare. So there's plenty of very uh, legitimate, uh, lucrative reasons why folks would work hard at doing this kind of stuff. There was, for instance, a, uh, an operation, I believe it was run out of the Ukraine, uh, that involved uh, people getting a warning saying your security software is out of date, you need to buy something new, buy it here, and not only would the, the people in, uh, in the operation collect money for the software, it would then put some uncorrectable worm on the computer. <laughs> That's right, it's one of the most famous uh, spam scams out there. Uh, and in fact, when Configure, Configure got its name, and we won't get into the details of what it means, but the original, uh, one of the original things it did was contact this website called trafficconverter.biz which distributed precisely that kind of spam, which pops up on your computer and says, you've been infected, you need to download this malware right now or your computer's gonna blow up, so you pay $25, you download it, and your computer blows up. <laughs> and they get 25 bucks, too. And they get your 25 bucks, but, you know, and the, and the percentage of people who fall for that kind of stuff is very, very small, but when you've got a network that distributes to, you know, 12 million uh, people around the world, you don't need a big percentage to make money. Now, what is the status of this network now, this botnet? It's alive and well. Uh, the efforts, I'm sad to say, of the cabal, as they're called, to curb it were only partially successful. Uh, we know it was used earlier this year to steal $72 million from American bank accounts. Um, How does that work? Well, every infected computer is vulnerable because it hasn't been receiving security updates. And, and the botnet, because it reports back every day, um, gives you a list of infected computers. So you can actually go online and lease uh, a, a network of, say, 12,000, 100,000 vulnerable infected computers. And if you know uh, how to invade those computers, which malware programmers do, uh, you just steal all the private information from it, bank account numbers, passwords, and then they act, literally advertise online and hired mules here in the United States to go to banks and transfer money back to their own account, thinking that they were doing this for some legitimate company in Europe. It was actually the uh, Confecker uh, programmers putting them to work. There'd be people, there would actually be people physically involved going into a bank? Oh yeah, or either go in or do, to do the transaction online, but they would be armed with the uh, access information. They would drain money from one account and deposit it in another, and then for their efforts, they were allowed to keep like 5% of everything they transferred. And the folks who did this believed they were working for a legitimate international corporation, which said, you know, we do business in America, but we haven't established any offices here, so we're hiring people to act as our agents here in the United States. So well, since 2008, we've seen some gray lines in that area, I think, you know, people draining bank accounts from one way or another. There was, a, um, there was an interesting um, uh, process in this. There was a, there was a gentleman uh, who 
loved getting not only below into the code where there were words and encryption and so forth, but actually down into the very sort of machine language of zeros and ones. And he would look at that for weeks and weeks, sorting it out. Yeah. What, what did you think of that man's brain? <laughs> well, I was fascinated. His name is Hassan Saidi. He works also at Menlo Park. He's from Algeria. And uh, he is one of the foremost experts in the world on uh, you know, computer programming. Um, computer programs are written in languages that are designed uh, so that normal human beings can actually tell computers what to do. Because real computer language is binary, and it's all ones and zeros. And if you were to look at a, a computer program written in binary language, you would just see page after page after page of ones and zeros, which would mean nothing to any normal person, but Hassan can actually read uh, the, the basic language of computer programming, ones and zeros. So when he tries to decrypt, the, uh, sh the, the creators of Configure uh, basically encased it in an encrypted shell, and he had to break through that in order to dissect it. So it took him several weeks, but he eventually parsed together you know, what the program was and how to, how to break it. So there exists, not only on this planet, anti-malware uh, programs, security software companies, but there are companies then that sell malware and teach people how to avoid security then. And they've got their own websites, companies, right. chat rooms. Yeah, it's a, it's a counter world. Uh, you know, we have the AV industry in this part of the world where, you know, people down... That's the antiviral industry. Antiviral industry where they'll, you'll download a security that will supposedly protect your computer and they employ thousands of people and highly skilled technicians and they have health benefits and retirement benefits and all that stuff, vacation days. And just as there are people doing that for legitimate reasons, there are these uh, criminal enterprises that are equally well-funded, uh, that are every bit as skilled, uh, and I'm sure they all have health pensions and uh, retirement benefits as well. You, uh, you described the consortium of people who worked on this as a relatively small group as the cabal. Um, it seemed that the creators of the Conficker worm sent the cabal, uh, they had to know that they were being engaged in this conflict, sent the cabal a message. How did they do that? Well, they did it by um, letting them know that they were monitoring their um, uh, communications at SRI. Uh, Phil Porras was pouring through to see you know, what the new strain of Conficker uh, was all about. And they had left in a little bit of code to let him know that they were monitoring his communications at SRI. So all of a sudden, this contest, which had been a kind of a, a abstract one for him, became very personal. He knew he was dealing with somebody every bit as good as he was, or he thought maybe not quite as good as he was, uh, but really impressed by what they could do. So there's this admiration of the, of the enemy, as well as the, the sense of being appalled by you know, what, they're, what they're doing. Okay, so there was this theory that on April Fool's Day, was it 2009? Right. It, it was that, that this Conficker worm was going to crunch the internet in, in some way. But nothing happened that day. Well, this, this is a... Uh, we think nothing happened. Yeah, well, this is uh, something actually did happen, but not what was widely predicted. Um, this is an example of my folks. I'm a newspaper reporter from way back, so I can say this. You know, the, the mass media is screwing things up totally. Uh, you know, if you tell a reporter like me, you know, that the worst case scenario for, say, this botnet 
would be that they would take the internet down completely on April 1st. Uh, that is going to be the lead of my story. And so, uh, you know, what happened was the, the new strain of Conficker was... Even if they're saying very quietly, well, it's a possibility, it could happen, that becomes the quotation in big, bold print. Without a doubt, especially since Y2K fizzled so big. I mean, we all get a lot of sort of entertainment value out of watching sort of techies, you know, self-destruct with their predictions. But uh, uh, basically, Conficker C, which was the most sophisticated strain of the worm, uh, the one with 50,000 domain names to contact, was scheduled to kick into gear on April 1st of 2009. And so uh, when word is leaking out to uh, reporters who have no idea what this is all about, uh, they're interviewing folks like Phil Porras and, and Hassan, and, and they're saying, well, what's going to happen on that day? And they said, well, you know, that's the day it will activate. Well, what, what does that mean? And they would say, well, uh, it means that they will have the largest stable botnet in the world in their hands. Worst case scenario, they could use it to shut down the internet. So boom, you know, on 60 Minutes and the New York Times and NBC and ABC, the world is going to end on April 1st. Uh, it was actually not a likely occurrence because whoever created the botnet wants to use the internet to make money, so they're hardly going to, you know, shut it all down. Uh, but nevertheless, that was the big story, and when it didn't happen, um, interest in the Conficker worm fizzled, just as did with the Y2K, which doesn't have any bearing on reality. But a few months later, some spam was sent out using this botnet. The creators of the botnet, and your guess is as good as mine why they did this, they distributed a very garden variety spam, which is a little bit like, I don't know, if you're capable of running a, a, a 100 yard dash faster than anyone in the world, you know, entering a, a, a skip rope competition at a grade school. Uh, but they did it, I think, to demonstrate that the botnet was alive and well and they could use it whenever they wanted to, uh, which was enough to make the folks they were battling with realize that they had been beaten. That was kind of saying, nya, 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 right? Exactly, and I describe it in the book as like uh, in the scene in the circus where the clown corners the villain and pulls out the big gun and points at him and a little flag pops out that says, bang. <laughs> That's kind of what happened. All right, so given that you've, you've written about uh, conflicts, conflicts where there's a lot of uh, very technical information, a lot of timelines, how do you keep track of this and try to grapple with the material as a writer? Well, you look in all the stories, at least the ones that I write, for uh, what I call the dramatic spine of the story. In this case, it was this competition between folks like Rick Wesson and Bill Porras and the others uh, against these dark uh, conspirators. Um, and I think that, that the give and take of that battle forms a very interesting sort of dramatic, gives a dramatic structure to the story. And that gives me an opportunity to write about things like you know, what is the internet actually? Uh, what is malware? How, how has malware evolved into something so sophisticated? Where is it going? How exactly does Conficker invade your computer? All the kind of questions that I would like to have answers to. Uh, if you just wrote a book uh, describing all those technical things, it'd be pretty dry. But when you can hang it on these wonderful personalities and you can tell a story, I think you compel ordinary readers like uh, myself uh, to keep reading and and you know under, and read stuff that they wouldn't otherwise read. Do you uh, do you keep your computer security up to date? 
I do. I, I, in fact, I'm very religious about it now. Uh, although one of the things that, you know, that is the question that people ask most often because they're worried when they talk, when you talk about malware, they're worried about their computer. And that's a legitimate worry because if your computer is infected, you aren't getting security updates and you could be, like the poor suckers whose bank accounts were drained, victimized. Uh, but the truth is that the real threat is societal. Uh, you know, we rely on the internet increasingly for things like the energy grid in this country, wastewater management, air traffic control. There are all kinds of vital networks in this country which rest on the undergirding of the internet. And I don't know about you, but the idea that some guy who wakes up with a bad attitude in the Ukraine could take it all away uh, with a stroke of a key is pretty alarming. There are some Luddites who might say, how can I meet this chap, you know? <laughs> But uh, no, it, it is, it's, uh, and I think that's sort of one of the interesting things about, you know, by the time you get to the end of your book, it's, it's like, you know, the end of a, of a film where the ending is ambiguous, but you know the threat is still there, you know, the botnet is, is alive. Um, what did you learn about the writing process from seeing how uh, Black Hawk Down went from, you know, your research, your writing in the book into a, into a film story? Well, that was a fascinating experience for me because, uh, you know, I had personal experience working with uh, uh, two genres. I mean, prose, which I think is the most sophisticated method of storytelling and is not about to be replaced by anything anytime soon, uh, versus film, which is this enormously popular uh, form of storytelling. Film is visceral and powerful, uh, but it's not real good at detail. Uh, books are tremendous at detail, and every once in a while, if you're a good enough writer, can really grab you and, and affect you emotionally, but it's, it's more difficult to do. Another, you know, when we were working on Black Hawk Down, uh, you know, one of the things that I was concerned about in the adaptation was that there wasn't enough about the Somalis and about their reasons for being so hostile to American forces there. So at one point I said, uh, you know, we really need to develop some Somali characters in this movie, and they said, well, we just, we don't have enough time. And I said, well, why don't you make a three-hour movie? You know, which so the wonderful naive question that the writer from the East Coast asked. It turns out they won't make a three-hour movie because if you do, movie theaters can only show it twice a day. If you make a two-hour movie, they can show it four times a day. So as Jerry Bruckheimer explained to me, Mark, we're going to spend $130 million to make this movie and you want us to cut our profits in half before we even start? So it, you know, I, you learn that the demands of the medium are shaped by forces, you know, other than purely creative. But by the same token, you know, in the same way that if you decide to write sonnets, you have to uh, adopt certain restrictions on, uh, you know, the number of lines, the, the pace and rhythm of, of your meter. Um, you know, in the same way, you know, screenwriters, filmmakers are challenged to work within the constraints of, of that medium. So there are strengths and weaknesses to both. Uh, I can tell you this, you uh, sell a hell of a lot more books after a movie's been made. <laughs> <laughs> so can you see a worm being a 92-minute special? Uh, I can see something. Uh, I don't understand how to adapt it myself. I've been asked this question. I've had a couple conversations with producers, and you know, I tell them, honestly, I have no idea you know, how you would do this. But then you, know, you look at a movie like Social Network or Moneyball, which took you know, in one case, the story of Facebook's creation and the other, you know, this application of mathematical analysis to baseball. And you would think, how, how in the world could those ever be movies? And those were pretty good movies. And you 
come out with character at the end. Right, I think the that's story. the key, yeah. You need to develop in the same way that I said earlier about storytelling. You need compelling characters, you need a dramatic spine. Uh, I think that it's doable, uh, but I'm not about to volunteer. And so in, in Worm, you had this ideal cast of characters in the Cabal and an imaginary villain out there, he, they, she, whoever it might be. The girl with the dragon tattoo. Who knows who it was, right? Right, we don't know who it was. I mean, the one possibility is that it is really a nation state. Because as I said, if you have a weapon this powerful, it could be very, very useful. If you wanted to, like say, when Russia invaded Georgia in 2008, they took out all their telecommunications with a cyber attack. Uh, if you have a tool like the Config or Botnet, that's the kind of thing you could do. So it might be Sri Lanka ready to take down the United States, right? Right. I mean, it used to be that to wreak widespread havoc in society, you had to have like a fleet of fighter jets. Nowadays, you just need knowledge and a computer. Increase your knowledge. Worm, the first digital world war. Mark Bowden. Thank you very much for being on West Coast. Live. Thank you, Sedge. My pleasure. This is Sedge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.